This is Jim Wills, and you are listening to the Crave Magazine Podcast, where we feed your soul with art. Art in early times, it's one of the first things found in every single culture of the world. Learn to become your own greatest teacher and your own greatest fan. Find your flow and do your creative expression every day. I care about art because it is a fundamental way of people expressing themselves. Your story and who you are and your journey as an artist is part of what's going to make your art valuable. So we're here this week on the podcast with an award-winning photographer and videographer. Her name is Patricia McEnroy. She is an adjunct professor at the Rocky Mountain College of Art and Design. And she was my video teacher when I went back to finish my degree at the Art Institute. So uh, I'm so glad to sit down and talk with you and find out how you're doing in these uh, crazy times that we're living in today. Uh, Patricia, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. I've been listening to the podcast. I enjoy it and I'm excited to be on. Oh, well, thank you so much. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm glad to have you. I'm really excited to talk to you about what you've been up to. And I know um, from when you were my teacher, you moved on to a new uh, place of employment, a new place to teach young people about photography and videography. So I'm excited to talk about that as well as what you have coming up. So let's get into it. The first thing we always start off with is an inspiration, is something that inspires you. So, And it can be a piece of uh, video work or, or photography or imagery or quote or or anything that you find that inspires you that you carry with you i have like so many things pop up when you say that so it's hard to narrow it down to one but uh for me there's something about movement that helps generate like art ideas for me so i i love to take walks in the morning and that's Mm kind of like my you know that's that's how i set my pace for the day i guess another thing i've kind of gotten into which is a little, maybe a little bit more eccentric is when I work out, I like to watch art videos. And um, the thing is, is like, it keeps me working out longer and it keeps me watching the the videos longer. So I'll put on like an art 21 or yesterday I was watching one about a graffiti artist in Australia. Okay. And there's something about moving while I'm like taking in information that gets me more interested in it. So is it always like, a documentary or like real life stuff or, or do you ever watch like art films about it's almost, artists or it's almost always a documentary or sure. maybe like a biography type thing yeah uh, yeah I, I remember from school not not just within photography but just like you know taking art classes and talking about artists or you know people in history that i may not have even really like i may have heard about but didn't really know of too deeply and then doing that, like going and watching a documentary on this person. And then I wanted to ask you as well, what the name of that, that the graffiti artist oh. documentary was. Um, it's, and I'm, I'm not like a huge fan of his work or anything, but I'm always interested to see like how an artist trajectory works. You know, it's called, have you seen the Listers or something like that? His last name is Lister, L-I-S-T-E-R. He's from Brisbane. Okay. So, from and Brisbane. also, yeah, and since I've traveled enough, like I know all the places they're talking about, which is really helpful. But uh, like a whole Art Twenty One series, I 
I'll watch that over and over, you know. So Have I you... love to see stuff like that. Abstract, if the Abstract series on Netflix is mm -hmm. awesome. Yeah, yeah. Lister, the Lister uh, piece. Mm -hmm. Had you seen his art when you were in Australia or? No, I, at least if I did, I didn't know about it. I was actually looking for um, some other art documentary and it was one of those where the one I was looking for wasn't there. So then they just popped up suggestions and I was like, I have a problem of overthinking stuff. So I was like, I don't care what this is. As long as it's about an artist, I'm interested, you know, right. a musician or whatever too. So Sure, sure. I'm going to come back around to that. But first, let's talk a little bit about your story um, and and what you do, the work that you do and, um, and where, and you know, where you kind of take us through your journey as an artist. Okay. Should I just tell you my journey? Like, <laughs> sure. Wait, wait, start wherever you, I mean, you can start from, I was a small child. <laughs> okay. Really for me, um, I, I, I was in 4-H when I got a camera, when I first okay. got a camera and we didn't have photography classes at the schools that I went to. When I went to community college, they had a scholarship if I would work for the school paper. So I was like, sounds good to me, you know? Um, but I was really thinking like fine art photography would be great. I think that it's really difficult to make a living at. One day this photographer came into our department and he was looking for help at the local newspaper. Okay. And it turned out this was the exact person I wanted to meet because I'd been watching his work in the newspaper and it was like, it was photojournalism, but the way he did it was like art. It also turned out that he had already had work published in National Geographic. So I, I would have called him, but I was too shy. And he just wandered <laughs> in and was like, hey, I need help. Um, this was in your high school? This was when I was in community college. So Community college. Yeah. So I moved down to my parents' house and I got a little basement apartment. But it was really inexpensive to go to the school. And I could actually support myself on minimum wage. you know. And so it was great. And then... This guy walks in, who's the person I want to meet. He's from Poland originally. His name is Spishek Buzdak. But my teacher said, well, here's two people. He gave him me and this other woman. And we both worked at the paper at the college. And I thought, forget it. She's way better than me. So he looked <laughs> at our stuff. And I was like, what do you think? And he goes, you're not very good. <laughs> I said, well, yeah, because I'm not even interested in photojournalism. I said, but I was interested in meeting you. And... I said, the other lady's a lot better. He goes, I, I don't want to hire her. I want to hire you. And I said, why? And he goes, because she already thinks she knows everything. Because Ooh. I can't teach her anything. Yeah. And um, he goes, you, you know that you don't know anything. And you're teachable. And that's something that's been a great lesson. Um, as an instructor, I noticed that too. You know, you're going to make a lot more progress with someone who feels they have something to learn than right. somebody who comes in and thinks they don't have anything to learn. Sure. So that was a great lesson for me and um, something that I've continued to think about. But he kind of sparked that excitement about photojournalism that I just wouldn't have had. He, I said, if you hadn't grown up in Poland, where would you go to university? And he said, the University of Missouri. It's got the best photojournalism program. Okay. I'd, I'd never even heard of it. This was before everything was on the web. So, sure. so I ended up going to school there. I met lots of other like-minded people that you know were interested in photojournalism and then from there I, I I had a career as a photojournalist where I got to travel to all different states I did an internship in a Spanish-speaking country that helped me get better assignments later on and so for 10 years I did that and um, and then at that point print media was starting to disappear because the internet was starting to become 
so popular unless people were getting their news from print publications. Sure. That's when I decided to to kind of change my path. So, but that's sort of the beginning of it. You said a Spanish-speaking country, but you didn't mention mm-hmm. the country's name. I was really lucky because um, my school had uh, a lot of international students, and what would okay. happen is people from international publications would come to to grad school, or they'd come and take a semester of classes at my university, so that they could kind of get in tune with like what was what was going on. So there was an international journalism class I took, and a guy named Edgar was in that class, and he was at this publication called La Nación in um, Costa Rica. So, and it also turned out the guy who was the publisher of that paper had taken some classes at Missouri. One of their staff photographers came and did a semester at our school, Mariano Matamores. So I got to meet him. So, um, they and where had, was he from? They were all from Costa Rica. like All, all from Costa Rica. Yeah. Okay. So um, I, that was sort of my backup plan. Like if I didn't get a job after I'd done a certain number of internships, uh-huh. it's always a good backup plan to go to another country because sure. <laughs> um, it's you're going to learn something by being there. And, it, you know, it sounds like you're doing something. <laughs> but that's, no, a, honestly, that's really good it does sound like you're doing something yeah. they're like it's that. like what are you doing oh well they're in you know poland or whatever well they must be doing something but right right honestly, Why else would they be there? i i mean it was a job where you showed up five or six days a week and you got assignments and i got paid 500 dollars a month and i lived with a family of one of the journalists um another okay. woman who was close to my age so i got I got sort of integrated into her family, which was really cool because uh, they, if they went on an outing, I was invited along. Sure. And the, how the, how good was your Spanish before you went? It wasn't good. I was conversational in German, so I knew how to learn a language. Sure. So sure. I just translated those skills, and um, I put myself in a situation where I wasn't around any other Americans. Yeah. I was at a Spanish language publication and living with a family. And I worked really hard at it. So I, I basically just got conversational in about five months. I kept working on it after the fact. Yeah. And I took more classes. And, and when I went back, seven years later, I went back to visit. And one of my uh, my my sisters of the family, she goes, where did you learn to speak Spanish? And I'm like, <laughs> you taught me. You taught me. She's like, no, no, you didn't speak Spanish like this when you were here. Oh, wow. And I've been working on it during the pandemic. Like yeah. um, every day I watch the news in Spanish at lunch. Oh, wow. Okay. And I've been learning new vocabulary that's all related to the, the pandemic. So actually I watched the Simpsons in Spanish a lot Yeah. Um, with my family there. And it was really helpful because I had seen most of the episodes in English. So that's another thing I'd started doing during the pandemic. I started rewatching some Simpsons episodes. Um, they're definitely Spanish. funnier in English. I mean, also because I can't understand every. I probably understand <laughs> about sixty to seventy percent at this point. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So. yeah. so you started out in photojournalism, and how long were you in photojournalism in doing still photography before you switched to video work? So it's a really good question because what what was happening at that point was the medium started changing. Um, all the mm-hmm. publications had started to have an online presence, and they wanted to have moving images. So let's say some forest fires were raging outside of Tucson, Arizona, which was where I was working at the time. They would just give us a video camera and go, well, while you're shooting the still photos, go ahead and shoot some video <laughs> without any training. Like we didn't even know how to turn the camera on. Nobody knew how to video edit. I'm yeah. just like, this is a terrible idea. Like this isn't working at all. 
besides right. the fact, you know, they're two different cameras. Like you, you're going to miss one thing when you're doing the other yeah. sort of thing. But it was like a wake up call. Like you better learn how to do this because this is what's going. This is where things are going. I could. You were kind of in the best place at the best time. In, in some ways, I got forced to change because when you're working for publications. You know, I started out with film and when it went digital, I had to go digital. I couldn't just be one of these people that sat around and said, well, I just really like film. Well, I would be out of a job if I did that. They were just like, yeah. here's a digital camera, figure it out. You know, so um, so it was helpful for making me learn on the job all the time. The other thing about journalism is it's it's really very sad. I mean, you're covering a lot of tragedy and, you know, it's one thing to turn on the news and see it. It's another thing to be there in person. Right. Right. So I, I, I witnessed lots of situations involving like traumatic death. And um, that really changed me as a person because you really start to think like, what's going on that this is happening? Like, you know, um, I cover a lot of issues on the U.S.-Mexico border and a lot of people were dying at the time I was doing it. And in the Tucson sector alone, more than 500 people died in one year um, crossing the desert mostly wow. from from heat exhaustion and dehydration and yeah. and it wasn't big news in the rest of the country which was really weird to me so you know it it made me feel like it's it's one thing to just keep telling people about this stuff but i wanted to do something i felt was more proactive like mm -hmm. what would help society the best and when i assessed my skill set i felt like being a teacher was the best thing i could do because you can reach people and and help them maybe before they reach some kind of a turning point you know what i mean yeah yeah, yeah. Like, so that's kind of that 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 was what helped me decide and i also it's great first responders are great but usually by the time a first responder shows up the situation is past a certain point you know what i mean right, like right. i'm just saying somebody got shot for example that's great that a first responder shows up but what if we could have reached out to the people who who were involved in that violent act before before that happened and helped right. them go down a different path or something or right you know. right no that's that's actually makes a lot of sense i it's sad i think that i mean i don't know how to, to ever change it but that that news is all about drama and drama is pain and suffering and and all the garbage that have all the bad stuff that happens but there's different kinds of news right so that's what we call spot news because it happens on the spot but mm -hmm. when you contextualize an issue, there's a there's a there's a big part of the audience that doesn't there's not able to take it in. So if we do all the background reasons, for example, about why are people immigrating to the United States from Mexico, people don't read those stories <laughs> because they require a lot more time and thinking than sure. just hearing the news of the day of what happened that day with the issue. And so that's what's frustrating about it. There are different kinds of journalism. And, and for the most part, m most of the public can't digest like the really, you know, deep stuff because they've just, they're living their lives, you know. Well, you know, you're right. You're totally right. But I, again, and I guess that goes back to the documentaries a little bit. I mean, I, like, for example, I think it's no surprise to anybody listening to this that I'm a primarily plant-based eater. And I got that way by watching certain documentaries. And I was led down that path of, you know, food. Like, what's our food all about? And I started looking for food documentaries. And then I started learning more and more about the food industry. And then it took me a path of the animal agricultural industry. And I, at some point, 
I guess something went off in my brain and I was like, you know what? I don't want to be a part of this anymore. I want to find a different way to live. And I don't, you know, I, I grew up on meat and potatoes, so I don't bemoan anybody who's not a plant-based eater. But for me, it was really important to not just see the headlines and to go deeper. And I guess. Absolutely. Now that's a, that's an excellent point. And, and you're probably right in the sense that that's probably what's drawn me to making documentaries is that you can tell so much more of the story. You can tell that whole story instead of just the headline. And right. so it's much more rewarding, you know. I guess I, I really learned this technique going back to school uh, and finishing my degree that I hadn't really done before as an advertising photographer, as a commercial photographer. You know, it wasn't about storytelling. And so I missed that whole aspect of it. Yeah. And the school I went to was really steeped in that. Yeah. Um, and yeah. that's that was actually a cool thing at the Art Institute was we had a great variety of teachers with a great variety of skill sets. And I was never the slick commercial photographer. I really came from that storytelling background. And then when I went to grad school, I went to a conceptual program, which was completely different. It wasn't also, it also wasn't the slick commercial studio <laughs> stuff. It was very much like abstract thinking and thinking about concepts. And it was a great compliment to my um, previous education because it was so different, you know? Sure, sure. You know, I, I loved... Uh pretty much every class I had that had to do with photography or the photographic arts or whatever. But like, I really enjoyed it. And I may have told you this before, but I really enjoyed the video classes that I took from you because I did, because like we talked about earlier, I had something to learn. And so I don't know if you remember what I took one class from you that was in final cut. And then the second class was in premiere because the school had changed exactly. over. Exactly. <laughs> that, 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 that's the kind of thing. Well, and it's like, Working with that software, you have to change it all the time. But anyway, yeah. first of all, thanks for the compliment, and I'll never get tired of hearing it. <laughs> it's, always <laughs> great to hear. it's always great to hear from students. And I do think, too, a lot of people don't realize until a little bit later how useful this stuff is because sure. I've had other people that I know of that have gotten an internship or a job because they had this one skill set that everyone else didn't have. Yeah. Um, and I've learned a lot since then, too. But the technology is also changing every six months or so, so you have to stay on top of it. Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about education a little bit because yeah, like you, you yours was one of my favorite courses and the other one who's someone else I interviewed, Tom Fink. I took, he had that conceptual art or conceptual class where he was like, all right, it's an eight week class or, whatever, or 12 week class. And we're going to do a different concept each week. You guys decide what that concept is and then we'll go from there. And so we as a class had to come up with X number of concepts and then each week we'd tell a story from that concept. And it was like a one photograph or one. Actually, I think we could create anything, one art piece to explain that concept. And for me, that was one, both one of the hardest classes and also one of the most rewarding. That seems like a really great mind opening thing. Um, mm. we, we have a class now at Rocky Mountain College of Art and Design that I teach, which is called 4D. Okay. And so the, the fourth D is, <laughs> is time. Yeah. And so it's a little bit different than just the traditional video class. It's anything that involves time. So it could be like um, a GIF. It could be. And so each week there's a different assignment related to that. And then they learn a different skill set in the process. So it could be performance art, could be an art installation, um, that kind of stuff. So it's not. And, and for me, that was also exciting because it's different than my traditional video class now where we kind of cover, you know, things in, in a certain order that's yeah. more linear, I guess. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Oh, so, so you're an adjunct professor, Rocky Mountain College of Art and Design, that's in Denver, Colorado? Yeah, for, it's technically in Lakewood, but it's in the Denver area. Like so. Denver Metro, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. And then let's talk a little bit about your past work. If you will, tell me about something that you've done that you're like especially proud of that like you've got some recognition for or that something that you unexpected happened because of it or. Yeah. So I was making a lot of really experimental pieces and I show in experimental film festivals, but I have these like ideas in the back of my mind of like, this would be a cool documentary, but I don't know if I want to do like a regular documentary. One time I had this class lined up at, at the college and they said, we don't have enough students. We're not going to run the class. But by the time they told me it was too late for me to get a class in another school. Okay. So all of a sudden I have, you know, what they call a time windfall, which is what's been happening a lot during the pandemic. So I was like, well, I have a lot of time right now, but I don't have a lot of money. So I went back to this list of ideas and there was a documentary I was really interested in trying about a historical figure named Clara Brown. And uh, Clara Brown was, uh, had been a slave in Kentucky, um, got freed because the guy who was her owner died and he gave her her freedom in his will. She ended up working her way out to Colorado and um, she basically made a small fortune. She uh, was able to start a small business doing laundry. She would like loan money to miners and then she'd get Sometimes she get land or mine because of that. And um, she she was a real philanthropist. So when mm. slavery ended, she was able to go back to where she'd come from. She was looking for her own family, brought about 20 people back here, ex-slaves. Oh, wow. And I was like, this is such an amazing story. Why have I not heard this story? Like, I just feel like this is something everyone would be interested in. To me, it was part, an important part of Colorado history and women's sure. history and African-American yeah. history. So I just made it on my own. I did it on my own time. Took me a while to get through it. Um, I checked in with the um, Black American West Museum. I went and met with their board and I told them what I was doing. I showed them a clip and they helped me find more people to interview. They were supportive of it. Because I really was like thinking, I don't want to step on anybody's toes. I want to make sure I'm doing sure. this the best correct way I can. And that film, I submitted it to a contest that PBS had and it won the U.S. Women's History Award. So it showed on national PBS on 90% wow. of the stations. So that's probably the that's... biggest exposure I've ever gotten. And it was very uh, positive reinforcement, too, you know. <laughs> and what was the name of the film again? Just it's, for called, everybody it's called Clara, Angel of the Rockies. And it is free online. Like, the whole thing's free online. Through this. The show it aired on is called To the Contrary with Bonnie okay. Bay. They really focus especially on women's issues, but also anybody who's kind of a little bit more marginalized groups, they also focus on that too. So that was really rewarding. And that kind of helped me believe that it's possible. You don't just have to put yourself in one little niche. I still like to do experimental work, but I've also done more documentaries since then too. So uh, that's, would you consider that to be a historical documentary? Yeah, it was definitely so, a historical documentary. So how do you, how would you approach that differently from, because because she's already passed away and she has a great story, but it happened more so than hundred years hard. ago. It was so hard. You... There was no video footage. There was nobody alive to interview that had ever met her. Most of the books that were about her were out of print, and then the authors had died. Oh um, I mean, there was one still photograph of her, and I'm like, how am I supposed to make a film with one still <laughs> photograph? But I was like, I really want to tell this story. It's such yeah, an amazing yeah. story. I actually hope someone makes a feature film about her. So I started trying to find people who would know her story. And then I started to compile a list. And I wanted it to be a variety of people. Mm. So 
the the Black American West Museum said, you know, you should talk to um, Dr. George June at uh, University of Northern Colorado. He's he's somebody who had incorporated her into a book that he had written, and he's also a great interview. He just incredibly knowledgeable about a variety of topics. They also helped me find uh, a Clara Brown, someone who used to reenact her at oh, wow. uh, historical situations. And she was great. Her name's Gwen Scott. And she had actually put herself in this person's shoes and embodied the characters. So she was, mm. she wouldn't like go into character for me or anything, but she was somebody who had done a ton of research, yeah. and tried to see how would it feel from this person's perspective. Um, I found a little uh, girl who had done a report on her for school. Okay. So, you know, when they do Colorado, the Colorado history unit, that's who she had chosen to do her report on. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. So so it was cool to get those different voices. And then there's a guy who gives tours at the Capitol. There's a stained glass of Clara Brown at the Capitol. So I took the tour. In Denver? Yeah. So I took the okay. tour of the Capitol to get a photo of the stained glass. Well, it turns out they also have an image of her on a quilt. And this guy who was given the tour just went out of his way to tell her story. Well, I was like, I got to talk to this guy. Yeah, um, that, unprompted, he told her story. No, yeah, I didn't right know. Here. He just he said, <laughs> you know, it's his tour and he does it how he wants. Other people do it differently. But that's right. what somebody he decided to honor and focus on. And so um, and he was also a great interview because he had her story down in a real succinct way. Yeah. When was it? What when was this? What time frame? OK, let me look. You, I think you, it was. You, I'm going to have to check real quick just to see when it aired. Cause it was like at the, um, when, when, when did you create it? Like, okay, hold on. It was 2016 was when I was working on it. And then it showed on PBS, like literally the end of December, beginning of January on different stations. And then in 2017, it showed at um, like women in film in, in um, Denver and it won the audience award there. And then it also, showed at a film festival in Kentucky, which I wanted to screen there because with Claire Brown being from there and mm -hmm. I, nobody that I met at the festival had even heard of her. What was sure. also really interesting was right when I'd finished the film and it, right when it screened on um, PBS, they opened up the African-American History Museum in Washington, D.C. And there's a full-size sculpture of Claire Brown, which was a very big surprise to me because... I thought that, you know, hardly anyone knew her story. I don't know how they decided, you know, because they had a lot of people to choose from, but that's one sure. of the most popular pieces at that museum. Wow. So. How did you get turned on to the story? Like, how did you hear about Claire? Yeah, Brown? so my partner, Jen, was biking down the bike path, and there was a sign on the bike path uh, in Denver that said, famous people that were buried at Riverside Cemetery. Riverside Cemetery wow. is a historical cemetery. And Clara Brown was one of the people. And she's like, you're not going to believe this. And I'm like, I couldn't believe it. And so so I did get to visit her grave. And actually, I just went there again recently. Um, Wait, but how did you know about Clara Brown? How did you find out about her originally? Through this? Because, because, the, because this was just like a wayside sign that had like five people buried in the cemetery. And it had their backstory. Okay. And it was like, oh. hers just really jumped out as like, sure. well, I, you know, really? She's, and she's buried <laughs> right here? That's you know, crazy. Like, it's an amazing story. So, you know, that's it's also amazing that like that whole Jen was riding her bike and saw a sign of a historical marker. Well, I I think it's interesting that geography holds a memory, and it's something mm -hmm. different to be standing in it and go, oh, there's a, there's all these stories here, you yeah, know. Yeah. And then it's exciting to get to bring it to life. And when I was 
interviewing people about Clara Brown, a couple people referenced this place called Nicodemus as if I'd heard of it. And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. And Nicodemus is all black town in Kansas. So I started looking up Nicodemus and I'm like, they have an annual celebration there every year, the end of July. And um, it's open to anybody because it's actually now a national park historic site. So um, I ended up making another short documentary about Nicodemus, Kansas, um, and got connected with some people in that community. So, because it was an all black, because yeah, you found was, out about it through Claire Brown's right, story. Right, right. It's like one thing led to another. And when I went to Nicodemus, I brought some DVDs about Claire Brown and I gave them to them. I said, you know, because they had like a little thing where they sell stuff. And I also just want to say, you know, like, I'm interested in this. I, I have a little bit of credential. And they're just, they're used to people showing up and, you know, <laughs> and they're very open. And so, um, was when it like I, an uh, ex-slave town or like, why was it all black town? So again, it's such a fascinating story of like really Western history that ha- needs to be shared more widely in 1877. So, so slavery officially ended in 1865. In mm-hmm. 1877, this town was founded in Kansas, mostly of ex-slaves. So, but the people that the problem is with being an ex-slave is most of the time you are never able to read and write because you weren't allowed right. to. So there were the people that helped with that. There were some other um, blacks that were freed blacks, people uh, who had like degrees, you know, like a lawyer and stuff like that. So they got together. I think there were like four black guys and one white guy that officially signed all the paperwork. Mm -hmm. But then they recruited people to come from Kentucky. And apparently they they picked this one plantation in particular because it was the vice president at the time, the vice president, which I think was Van Buren. In other words, these slaves were a little better off than your average slave. They could okay. save. They could save up five bucks because it was it was going to cost them five dollars to come to Kansas, and then they jointly would would um, invest in this property, which All is right. I think 144 acres. So a lot of people were pretty excited because you know ten years had gone by and things hadn't really improved for most people. So right. that the the fact that you could actually own your land was pretty exciting. However. When a lot of people got to the middle of Kansas and looked around, there was a group of people that turned around and went back. Sure, yeah. They literally yeah. turned around and went back to Kentucky because they're like, what? This isn't going to, we can't grow anything here. Because they had come from these green rolling hills and they came to this flat, sort of desolate looking, you know, land. Nothing was but here 150 years ago. It did. There were other farming communities, yeah, sprouting up around there. There was one that was like a little more French speaking farming community. So there were other mm-hmm. ones in that area. But the, what's amazing about Nicodemus is that the descendants still live in the area. So the yeah. descendants of those exact slaves and, and they can trace their, their history back. A lot of people have been robbed of their history. So they can say, this is who my grandparents were and my great grandparents. This is where I came from. Um, and it really, there's a strong sense of identity there. So I made a short documentary about Nicodemus and uh, Angela Bates, who was the head of the historical society there. She has, a son that lives in Denver. So sometimes she'd come to Denver and we go have lunch. And she said, I'm applying for a grant. And if you're interested, I'll write you into it. <laughs> <laughs> it was a grant she'd gotten before. It was for these farming towns in that part of, of Kansas. So I think that's the northwest corner of Kansas. And so she said, well, what do you think would be good? And I'm like, well, I'd like to photograph some of the elders in the community. They're not going to be around forever. And so we kind of cooked up a plan and, um, and then I came back and 
photographed like eight of the oldest members of the community and we also did interviews with them oh, wow. so and she got the grant so it was a couple thousand bucks basically enough to cover my expenses and then maybe like put five hundred dollars in the bank but sure uh, but it was great to also again it felt good to ha to be invited after i just kind of showed up <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> well i have i have about it it made you feel better about it? Yeah. Yeah. Like, oh, I'm just this outsider. And especially not being African-American, not being a descendant of the community to kind of like be able to come in and, and say, here's what I have to share, because I think this is an important story. And for them to be interested in it and have a use for it, then the next year at their homecoming, they displayed the portraits that I took. So that was really oh, cool. Uh, and they also thanked me at the next homecoming, which was cool, too. So. You talked before about, I mean, I have so many questions on this. I, it's fascinating. But you talked before a little bit about, uh, like, why I hadn't heard these stories. And I was reading an article about how different education is across our country. Whereas, and not to get political or anything, but the Civil War is taught very differently in the South than from in the North. Right. You know, and I grew up in Pennsylvania, right on the Mason-Dixon line. And I learned about the Gettysburg. I lived right, I grew up right near, get 30 miles from Gettysburg. So learned all about the Gettysburg, Battle of Gettysburg and the war and really from a Northern perspective of this is what was happening to free the slaves. And I read this whole article about in the South, they don't teach it that way in many schools still, even today, they, they teach it of like the, the union and the Confederacy were had different ideals and it was over the way they wanted to be run and governmental issues. And they don't teach about slavery in the same way that it's. And so we don't hear as, as a white person growing up in white America, I didn't hear these stories of, it wasn't until I, and what we talked about earlier about digging deeper, it's not until I actually said, well, this is like, what is it from the other person's perspective and started to dig deeper on stories of uh, black America or like South Americans or like Mexicans and the border, like you talked about earlier. It is, I think, especially in stories about people, it is really learning to like, this person has a completely different story than me and grew up completely different than me. And I want to learn what it's like to, be in their shoes. And I think so many times that's really hard for people to do. And documentaries are that many times that bridge. That's you know? great. That's and, and that's what's important about travel too, because you don't realize that people are taking things in from this other perspective. So I think it's mm -hmm. really valuable to to experience that. And I, you know, growing up in the West, I grew up in Wyoming, the Civil War was this far away thing. We, we mm -hmm. weren't really part of it in that part of the country. So yeah. it was just like this thing that had happened and was over. <laughs> <laughs> right. A lot of strong feeling, a lot of a lot of strong attachment about it. And so it was really it really brought things to life for me from that time period. And Clara Brown now, I always I, I know when she was born and when she died and when different things were happening in her life. Whenever I hear about some part of history right now, I I can think about how old Clara Brown was and what I learned at that time. <laughs> you know. Yeah. And and then it relates makes it all relate. Hey, right, it makes yeah. it a real thing to me. And and to bring it up to speed, the Nicodemus piece, uh, I showed it in uh, three film festivals in Kansas, which was a good place to show it, and it won an award at this uh, film festival called Doc Sunback that won the Jurors Award. So that was really cool. And at the time, I had started working on uh, a, a documentary about the LGBT community in Wyoming. And that right. one was something I'm more personally connected to. So this past year, I, I uh, usually I'll submit films for like a year or two, and then, um, and then I'm not showing them on the festival circuit anymore. 
And so I showed the last film festival, I showed Nicodemus out at the, in Brooklyn, New York. I got accepted to the Greenpoint Film Festival in Brooklyn. Well, and when was that festival? It, it, they had to move, they had to keep moving the dates because of COVID, but I think okay. it ended up being in August and they actually had it as an in-person film festival, which was a surprise to me. Wow. Yeah. They did it, they did it as a drive-in so that people could be contained in their cars. Okay. And, you know, the weather was nice enough to do outdoor type stuff like that. So people had to buy like their films in blocks and stuff like that. So that was probably, it was, it was, I was a little disappointed because I had been so excited to, um, to go to a live screening on my work in Brooklyn. Like I've had a couple short pieces show in New York, but it's always cool to show in New York. It definitely Mm -hmm. gives you a little more credibility. So, 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 okay. I said, I have so many questions on the, one of my earlier questions was, you did a piece on Clara Brown, and you said that was 2016 you worked on it. Right. Is that right? Right. And that was purely just a passion project? Like, there was no, yep. you had no plans for income from that before all you did it? All you I ever like, do is I'm lose fascinated money. with this person. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's, the art that you do, you know, if I'm going to, if I want to make money with my photography, you know, I'm probably going to shoot portraits. Like, I know okay. I can make money doing that. And most of the time, I make my living as an instructor. But when it comes to these, I just had to be like, I'm going to do it because that's what I want to do. That's my personal art. And it actually cost me money because I had to pay for this insurance called errors and omission insurance to have it air on national television. Mm. So that ended up costing more than the entire project it cost me to make. (laughs) It's crazy. It's crazy. Right. 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 One of the things I like about that is that it's a passion project, which instead of just doing it for monetary purposes, you're like, this is something I'm really interested in. And that you're able to arrange your schedule and your time and even your financial situation so that you can do this project. But one of the things that I think is interesting that came out of that was that someone approached you and said, like you became interested in another story. And then someone approached you and said, hey, I'm trying to get some grant money for this and I'll include you in on that. Right. And so then you were able to make another documentary that you said it brought in a little bit of money, a stipend. I mean, it's like theater. You right. get a stipend. <laughs> but it covered your expenses for this one. So it was a, it, this is a perfect case of you did one thing because you were so passionate about it. You found something which led you to something else which, that you're also passionate about. But that also started to bring some money. And Ooh. on top of that, then it's being shown in a festival, which unfortunately, because of our situation now, but fortunately, like then all of a sudden you're being seen and judged and win awards and so i guess my question from that is having it shown to a lot of audience larger audience like that and getting awarded for your work does that lead you to other work in that people come to you with any offers or things like that you know people always think right hey i'm going to do this and people are going to see it and then i'm going to become famous or whatever like does that actually happen in this kind of situation not so not for me, but that's not what I'm looking for. No, for me, okay. I mean, I've got my own definition of success. You know, I'm right, able right. to make ends meet with my job as an instructor. And then my, my wife has a better paying job, which has health insurance benefits. So there's that. Sure. But for me, to be able to tell the stories I want to tell and do what I want to do. Like I said, it's really different than the newspaper where they'd say, you're going to go shoot these three assignments today or these five assignments today. And then you're going to come back. And they're going to decide how it runs and how much time gets spent on it, where I could say, I'm going to work a year or two on this project, and I want to tell the full story the way that I want to tell it, and then I'm going to share it with people, and usually through film festivals. Now, sometimes people get distribution deals through film festivals, 
And for some filmmakers, that's their goal. They right. want they they're making a short to maybe get someone's attention, and then that person might give them funding to make a longer piece, or maybe sure, the, sure. The, it'll get picked up, and then someone will buy it. One one positive thing that happened to me with the Nicodemus piece was when it showed in this small town in Kansas, I met these really nice filmmakers. They were so nice. And, and they were like um, excited about the piece. And it was a real, it was a real supportive feeling f- film festival. Well, one of the guys I met there was a former journalist like I was. And um, he said, you know, that he really liked the piece. And he said, well, I had a piece in last year's film festival um, if you look it up, you can find it online. Well, it turned out that uh, it was on Amazon Prime. So I went and watched it on there, and it was actually about the gay community in Kansas. Oh, wow. And this dude was a straight, like I never would have thought. Like he's this bald, <laughs> straight dude, not somebody I would have thought was going to make a piece about. It's called Out Here in Kansas. Yeah, yeah. And it was so good. Um, and uh, like me, as a journalist, he'd come across these stories, and what it was was this like, really um, good college football player that had they'd always featured in their newspaper. And then it turned out this guy was gay and he became a doctor. And he was somebody that could have just left Kansas, but he decided to stay. And he was someone that a lot of people could relate to because he was a football player. He was handsome. He was a doctor. Mm-hmm. He was someone that could have flown under the radar. He's not someone you would pick out as being gay, but he decided to come out and be more public about it. And so this guy made a piece about that and all the, you know, feelings around it, I guess. Sure. And so I told him, well, I had no idea you made this piece. I said, I'm working on this other piece that's related about um, LGBT community in Wyoming. And, and um, this guy's name's Adam. He let me send him clips of it. He's give, he became a mentor for me on the project. Oh, wow. Uh, that's awesome. And yeah, and it was great. So something like that came out of being in that film festival where you know, I got this mentor I never would have expected to get somebody who was at a really high level and has been generous with his time. Oh, those are great connections. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. I think it's, you know, a, a lot of people that I talk, talk to uh, in, the, in the podcast are deriving their income, their life from their art. What I love about talking with you is you're someone who primarily drives your income from your work, which is connected to your art and teaching your art and you do your art just for, for passion. And then all these other cool things come from it, award-winning and you make these great network connections. And then every once in a while you get a little grant money thrown your way, which is always fun. But I, it's a, it's very different from I'm going after a career in art to be an artist. You're like, I am an artist as a passion and my teaching of the art is where I'm driving my income from. And that's, that's, it's different. And I think it it's great. It is a little it's, different. It is a little different. And I, I think for me, when I went to graduate school, I had to make a distinction between what was my work and what was my work. You know, what was my personal work and what was my work that would help me earn a living and that that would give me a lot of freedom. And and being being frugal with your finances for me has helped me achieve a lot more creative freedom. You yeah. know, lowering your expenses and knowing what you can live on so that you can do what you want to do with the rest of your life and not, not buying into a lot of consumerism and that kind of thing. That's really worked for me. Yeah, uh, I think it's really great to be able to do that. And as an artist, to recognize when you get kind of pulled in one direction that may not be your passion and be, I guess, aware and listening to what you really want to do. And you were able to do both things. And the second part of what you just said was the the 
I think you call it frugalness with your finances. Is this, yeah. where, this isn't a financial podcast, but I talk about it often. And one of the ways that I've been able to do that same thing was to really learn about how to uh, be financially responsible, like how to manage money in a financial way so that I could pay for my expenses, but also live kind of the lifestyle that I want. And that lifestyle isn't, you know, going out and buy the, a, a big home or go out and buy the newest car or go you know, keep up the, with the Joneses with the commercialism as we have here. It seems all too often in America, I am more of like, I want to have these great experiences. You know, my wife and I love to travel. So we want to have these great experiences traveling. And if I can incorporate that in my art, I'm kind of the same way. I'm very passionate about talking with people and so, and learning their stories and sharing their stories. And so I just, I don't know my point to all this, I guess, <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, learn, Learn fiscal, learning financial responsibility is really important, especially for an artist. I, I think, yeah, learning how learning how to, to, to figure out what your expenses are and how you can meet them. And I think often there's too much focus on how much you're going to make doing this job. Right, it kind of doesn't right. matter if you're already going to have to have spent it, you know. And for me, I was really into staying out of debt. Mm -hmm. um, and so when you're out of debt, then that frees up a lot for yourself as well. So... So anyway, yeah, those that's been a real, and I've I've had some time to think about it during the pandemic because my school invited me to do a, a talk they call it wayfinding, mm -hmm. um, and those wayfinding talks are kind of like not just showing your art and telling how you made the next piece, but how did you find your way as a as a creative person? Oh, and wow. so I reflected back and um, like you, uh, I always wanted to travel, and I made a list of like what do I want to do in my life? What are my values in my life? If you examine your values and you know what they are, you can live in tune with them a lot better instead of finding yourself way off track and be like, why am I doing this? Right. You know? Absolutely. So yeah, it's maybe the pandemic is a good time to think about what your overarching values are or what some of your biggest goals in life are. And then use this time to plan that a little bit. That's something that that I've been able to to think about during this whole thing. So, <laughs> so we're recording this in no uh, at the end of the year, 2020, and so we've had this pandemic uh, mostly the whole year. And I'm curious, how has your work changed? We talked a little bit about the film fest one, how it turned up from being they pushed the dates back. It was one thing, and then number two was it wasn't an in-person film festival anymore. How did it go from being, oh, you had a driving, a parking lot, you said, a, a right, drive-in yeah. festival? So I just, like, before we sat down to talk, I just made a list of stuff. So if you don't mind, I'll just kind of run through real quick. Oh, absolutely. Then, yeah, yeah, let's do it. So, like, beginning of the year, like January or February, the Nicodemus piece uh, played in Houston as part of the Society of Photographic Educators Conference. And I couldn't go. And that was right when we realized that there was a virus. So um, my boss went, and so it was it was part of that um, situation, but I didn't go in person, and I'm kind of glad I didn't because the virus was just starting to spread. So that actually happened in person. Then I was supposed to have a downtown show with a group called Artists Off Grid. It was right in the middle of March, and the weekend that it opened, everything shut down. Mm -hmm. um, I was supposed to have artists come from New York and California and stay at my house. Um, everyone had to cancel their trip, and I supported the canceling of it. Um, the physical exhibit took place, but nobody actually got to go into the building. <laughs> so they hung, they had literally hung up all the work and nobody got to see it. Oh man. So it became an online show. We did online artist talks about it. Then there was the drive-in film festival in Brooklyn. Then I was in an experimental film festival in Albuquerque. They put the whole thing online. 
Um, we each did online interviews as a group, you know, different. So I was in an interview group with someone in like London and someone in Spain. Oh, it was wow. live. Yeah, yeah, we had to coordinate all the time zones. So that was that was actually really cool. And then they chose my piece from that experiments in cinema thing to show as part of a festival in Cuba. That was supposed to be next month. They canceled the entire film festival in Cuba. So that's just not happening, period. And they said they're going to regroup next year. So I may or may not be in it next year. Okay. And then I was in an in-person exhibit in um, the Denver area, at the Arvada Arts Center called Pink Progression. They went ahead and did the in-person exhibit and people could come, but you had to do a time ticket entry. So um, and it was for the 100th anniversary of the women's right to vote. That was they did a great job with that show because they took your temperature when you walked in the building. I went to the show twice and there was like only one other person in the whole gallery. So it, they made it possible to go to something in person because of the time ticket entry and the temperature taking. They were cautious and they didn't have an opening or a closing for the show. So that kept the crowds low. So right, just go, right. go, your, go your leisure and check it out. And then I was supposed to do this in-person screening for, um, for Pride Month for June in Wyoming with Casper Pride of, the, of my newest documentary, Invisible Wyoming. So I, I purposefully like finally edited it so that it would be ready right for pri- the Pride celebration. And they had already reserved a theater for me. I was really excited about it. Oh, and um, of course, that event went completely online. Mm-hmm. But what was exciting was that there were so few things that you could actually do online for Pride that they got a really good turnout for it. I did a live screening and talk online. Oh, wow. um, we got a, a couple hundred people showed up for the, for the online screening. And then I left it online for just a month. And I got more than 2,000 hits in just a month on wow. that um, video and then I took it down so I could submit it to film festivals because usually festivals won't let you submit if it's free online. Okay. And so I've had a great response to that. And I I even just heard from somebody like a week ago that I went to high school with who like thanked me for making it and said it's helping her figure things out right now because she just she hadn't thought about how her environment growing up wasn't really supportive of her identity. So it's done exactly what I'd hoped it would do, but I'm hoping that I can get a broader audience for that. I'll tell you one more thing, which is sure, sure. The, big, the biggest thing that's happened with that so far, too, was it got accepted to a, a shorts film festival in France. It's a spinoff of the Cannes Film Festival. It's just a shorts film festival called Cannes Shorts Film Festival. Oh, wow. And they went online only. So... To me, that was really good validation. It was interesting to see that a place in France would want to show that. And then um, they awesome. had, yeah, it was, I mean, I'm really excited about that. And I'm hoping it's it's a sign of more good things to come with that piece. But um, they did, with their festival, they put the films in blocks. And then each block of films was $9 online. Okay. And so, and then because I was accepted to the festival, I got some free passes. <laughs> so, <laughs> I like, so you got to, you got to go to the festival. You and Jane got to go yeah. to the festival. <laughs> Would it be um, cool to go to, to Paris? I mean, or to France, so not in Paris, but, but. Yeah, I, I agree. How did it, how did it get there? Like, did you submit it or how did your, right. so you submit, did you submit to several festivals? Right. And so, that one got picked up. Is that what happened? So with the whole film festival circuit, it's kind of like submitting to art galleries. There's usually a, fee, a submission fee because they've got a bunch of overhead and they usually have a jury that's watching it and stuff like that. So it, so what I do is I have a budget and I actually I have some 
people who were really excited about the Invisible Wyoming film, they donated $500 to me because they knew that I did it all out of my own pocket. And I said, I'm not going to, I said, I'm not going to use this on expenses because I've already paid for that, but I'm using it for film festival submissions. Okay. So, so that's been really great. So I just immediately started submitting it to stuff and that's the first one that I've heard back from. I'm kind of hoping that I'll be able to do some of those screenings live by the end of next year. Because you have to submit pretty far out usually. So I'm submitting now for stuff that wouldn't I won't hear about for a couple more months, basically. So well, I'll make sure to get uh, links mm-hmm. from you for to for anything that's online that people Yeah, can I've got watch. a trailer for that. Yeah. That'd be awesome. Yeah, we want to put that up there so people can check that out. One of the questions that I always want to ask that I mean this has been such a great conversation just in in learning about uh, the, you and teaching art and also just you've given I think a lot of really great advice on art as a passion and I haven't talked a lot in the past about submitting to festivals and things like that so I'm really glad that you've shared some of that because I think that's an it's a big important part of being an artist is getting your art out there for work for people to see and it's been challenging in in the COVID times for for artists in in general and so the question I always ask is why should we care about art? I I would like to think that during times like these, during the, the pandemic times, that we realize how important it is more than ever, you know, that it is fundamentally like what makes us human, what connects us. It's helped ke- keep me sane. At first, I couldn't make any work about it or because it was just the situation itself was so overwhelming and self-care sure took such a priority, but I also realized how much I'm turning to art as a way to, to keep myself centered and sane and all that. Even if it's just like, if I see a really good show on Netflix, or if I listen to a really good podcast, or I've read several books, just how much art is expanding my world, even though my world feels really small in other ways right now. So I, I guess what I'm thinking now is, it really fundamentally connects us as, as humans. So I, this is the per- first podcast that I've done in a while. You know, how do you experience art in a time where you can't go experience it in person all the time? And so it's really cool to see that you're getting a lot of stuff online and that I think the online community is like having to figure it out, you know, with like live performances of musicians doing live festivals online because festivals are shut down and it's, it's a tough time for musicians. I, I mean, I have to say, like, uh, I had looked so forward to doing that live screening of the Invisible Wyoming piece, and I worked on that piece for years, like a few mm-hmm. years. But the online screening of it turned out to be better because people sat down and really watched it. And I got so much more in audience engagement because they were all typing in their comments. Oh, wow. That, you know, I wouldn't, I never would have thought that it would have gotten better attendance or better engagement. Or it would have had a longer, like I had a longer run because it had the month to sure. run. So, so some there, you know, sometimes it turns out better. You just don't know. Right, right, right. What what piece of advice would you give to someone who's an artist who wants to be in photography or videography or you know in in art? Hmm. It's. I guess I have to think about if they're thinking about making their living doing it. Or if they're thinking about that's what they love to do and they don't really care if that's how they make their living or not. What if I want to do both? 
one thing that one thing that we used to do at the newspaper and um, some of my friends too were, who are they're still doing it right now for a living was when we went to an assignment. In other words, we're, it's a paying gig, right? So you go to this assignment, you try to do your best to get what you think your editor wants or the publication wants. But as soon as you're done doing that, then you shoot for yourself. And a lot of times the ones that you shot for yourself ended up being ones the editor picked because you were thinking outside the box. So even if you're doing it for pay, make sure you're still doing stuff that's for yourself. And I think the same could be true whether you're shooting a wedding or whatever, you know, like, you know, you, you, you make a part of it that you know is for yourself as well as what you think is for the client or whatever. And I, I, I think, again, if you're a student in school, maybe you think that the teacher wants a certain thing, but actually a lot of times they're more excited when you tried something different or you didn't care what the teacher thought. <laughs> and then right. you're like, oh, that's really fresh. You know, I haven't seen that before. Yeah, so. yeah. I've had that experience happen so many times in commercial photography where I was shooting, you know, a widget for a catalog or whatever, but it was a cool widget. And I thought, wow, I can do just something like a really cool, different perspective on this, this generic, whatever. And it may not have gotten picked for the catalog because they wanted a catalog shot to show, you know, to show for purchase or what have you. But it, I thought it was cool enough that it was in my portfolio and I got hired for additional work based on that because someone saw that's really cool. And it's happened where I've gotten hired and the client, the new client was like, that's really cool. Shoot my widget. But make right. sure you shoot in the box because I want it shot in the box. But I know that you could, they kind of well, know that you can do that because you can do something. That, that speaks to another point is instead of shooting who you're, who you're working for, shoot who you wish you were working for. Oh, yeah, that's good. Because Say that one more time. <laughs> instead, of, instead of shooting who you're working for, shoot who you wish you were working for. I was yeah. like, I can make a little video, but I was like, I want to make something that I think would be good enough to put on PBS. I didn't actually think it would ever air there. So when it did, it was like, wow, I didn't expect this. But I was thinking I'm going to shoot as if I'm working for PBS, you yeah. know, or shoot as if you're working for National Geographic or whoever it is that you ideal. And then it doesn't really matter, like because then you'll still have it for your portfolio. And maybe that will help you get that job that you want instead of the one that you already have. Right. That's good. That's really good. It's, it makes your work better. It's kind of like playing tennis against someone who's better than you, you know, makes you a better tennis player kind of totally. thing. So, well, this has been great. I really appreciate you sitting down and chatting with me uh, via, via the internet. And this so, is, man, if nothing else, it's been great to connect with you like throughout the year. Like, no, it's just been this little, cause I know that this will be the interview, but we've had this little snapshot of interaction throughout Absolutely. the whole COVID thing. And it's been interesting. So uh, any last bits of advice or pizza, of wisdom to share you shared a lot a lot of wisdom <laughs> no i really do think that thing though about going back and thinking what your values are will help you stay in the direction that you want to go think about what your values are it'll help you stay in the direction you want to go right that's super powerful um you know i well maybe you don't know but i i my wife and i have an investment uh, fund talking about finances once I started to learn how to manage my finances and actually like to invest money or I had money that I could invest or whatever, I like I knew this was a way to create more freedom in my life. We decided to go about the way of like Warren Buffett who invest, who always preaches to invest in your values. And so mm -hmm. like I wouldn't invest in a company that, that abuses animals because like, a, and I don't like, again, I don't want to get political, but like right. I said, Oh, my values are, I choose this lifestyle. So I'm not going to invest in these certain companies because they are, 
contrarian to the way I hold my values. And it's been really powerful because it has helped my rest of my life be more aware of the values that I have and staying with it. So I think that's super, super powerful. That's I great. appreciate those words of wisdom. <laughs> Sounds like you're already doing it. <laughs> well, this is not just for me. This is also for everybody else who's listening. But, but yeah, before we get off the phone or before we get off the line, Patricia McEnroy, how can people get in touch with you? I'm, I have the good fortune of having an unusual last name. So if you just Google Patricia McEnroy, you'll get my website and my email address is on there. I have a Gmail address that's on there. So as long as you spell my last name right, it's Patricia. And then the last name is M-C-I-N-R-O-Y. Did you get it? Are you trying it? <laughs> you, you own you own the first page of Google. So Does spell it? Patricia's name right. Yeah, yeah, it's all you. Isn't it? I'm I'm so lucky because it just happens that I have an unusual last name. So and because I got a digit what we call a digital footprint a little earlier on than most people. Right. So right. so anyone else with my name, they're probably just a little bit older than me and didn't get like a website as soon or something. So yeah. So, yeah. Yep. On the contact page, that that's the easiest way, and that way you don't have okay. to remember anything. So. Okay. Well, great. Again, we'll have links to some of these uh, videos that are available for people to check out because, I, I, being a videographer as well as a still photographer, um, I want everybody to see your work. So, thanks again for being on the show. Yeah. Well, good luck with the podcast, and good luck with all your adventures and your move. It sounds really cool and exciting, and you know, we'll see where it takes you. music from this episode is the single Starry Night, brought to you from the Berlin-based South Korean DJ sensation Peggy Go. You can check her out wherever you find your music. Thank you for listening to the Crave Magazine podcast. I am Jim Wills, your host and producer for this episode, and I am on a mission to bring art back to the world. With your help, we can make that happen. So please take a moment to leave a positive review for us on iTunes. And if you like what you heard, even more importantly, tell your friends. If there's something that we can do better, by all means, let us know. And if you are an artist or even just want to hear from a favorite artist, well, send us a message. We are putting this show out for all of us who love and appreciate the arts. So tell us how we can improve. Remember, always be good to one another. And of course, take time to feed your soul with art. Music.